Good morning. This is a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of God. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, Man, it's good to see you. It's good to be back. My name is Ryan. I am the the pastor of preaching and vision here at Redeemer. If you haven't seen me around here in a little while, that's because Brian so graciously held things down for three weeks so uh, my family and I could take a vacation. We got to do a little bit of travel and really just rest and take some time to rest and and just be grateful for uh, one another. Um, We missed you guys. We really did miss you there was uh, the last few days of our vacation, we really just wanted to be back. We missed coming in on Sunday mornings. We missed um, just being a part of the rhythms and, and seeing all of you. Uh, and as we were feeling those things and talking about them with our kids and my wife and I together, it struck me that surely not every pastor has the blessing of actually longing to be back with their church that um, there, there's, there's got to be something special and, and, and unique for us that we are grateful, so grateful to be with you guys every Sunday that, that we just wanted to be back. And so 
Um, thank you all for worshiping with us this morning and, and being here so we could come back and just sing with you guys. Uh, well, in addition to Brian uh, kind of holding things down while we were gone, you also need to know that we've got some pretty serious teams that do a lot of good work here in serving our body. And those team leaders and those teams, those volunteers, um, make it really easy and relaxing for either one of us just to take some time off when we need to. We are uh, just barely two years old as a church plant, and there are church plants that are older that don't have the, the robust teams that we have. So thank you, teams and team leaders. But also, if you're not a part of one of those teams, would you please consider joining one? Actually, would you just please join one? Um, we've got cards in the chair backs in front of you, um, or sometimes you may see a QR code every now and then. If you're not a part of a team, please fill out a physical card. You can drop it in the box, uh, boxes around the building or the digital uh, cards you can turn in online. But really the point of this, what we want you to know is that when you serve on a team, you're not giving up a morning of gathering and worshiping. If you're in a kid's classroom, you are gathering and worshiping Jesus. If you are serving communion or coffee, you are gathering and worshiping Jesus. What you're doing is you're actually expanding your gathering and your worshiping of Jesus by serving his people. And the, like we talk a lot about church being a family. And the way that a family works is there's not one family member who just gets to consume, right? Like this is not a buffet, if we're really a family, and if, you, if someone were to ask you, where do you go to church, and your answer is Redeemer, then you should be serving because if this is a family, there's no family members that just get to sit back and be served by the rest of the family, right? So, so what I'm asking you to do is participate in the family, participate in worship. Now, I will qualify that. There are seasons that we are in and out of that are better times to serve and better times to let ourselves be served, okay? And so I just want to say this is no um, shaming of, of any of you who are not serving because you have uh, a, a great reason. You need rest. But what I am asking is that those of you who just simply haven't signed up, go ahead and sign up. It, it's real fast. So... Um, lost my spot. Okay, Psalm 73. We're going to get to Psalm 73, but this is an introductory sermon for the whole book of the Psalms, right? And I'll break that apart in just a minute. But like I normally do, I have some questions for you. Where has your mind been? Lately, today, this morning, in the last few weeks, what have you been thinking about? And not just what things have you been thinking, but what, what is captivating your imagination? As you drive from home to work to lunch to the store, if you have these quiet moments of stillness in your mind, where, where does your mind go? What's the one thought that you keep coming back to again and again and again? Now, there's, there's going to be a spectrum within this whole room, and so we could, we could fill up 
um, the endless Excel spreadsheet with all of our answers. But there's, the chances are that most of us probably in our, our dull moments are flipping on a TV show, flipping on a podcast, flipping on um, music, and so our minds are there, right? Some of us probably are thinking a lot about football because the Cowboys play their first game tonight at 7.20, Sunday night football. You know where my mind has been. But I, I would be willing to guess that in between those little distractions, when we do sometimes think about the Lord, some, a lot of times our, our minds perseverate on either our indulgences and our desires, the things that we want that look good to us, But we also may be consumed with questions and doubts and um, misunderstandings about Scripture and about who God is and who we are. And so we, we fill up this spectrum, but the reality is our minds perseverate on something. Our imaginations are captivated by something, are they not? Now this, I'm going to throw a really sciencey term at you, and I need to warn you, because some of you are going to want to write it down, and so we've got a slide for that. Some of you are going to want to never hear this word again, but here it is, experience-dependent neuroplasticity. The warning makes sense now. Experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Now, without getting into all of the articles and the papers and the data, basically what this means is that what our minds connect most deeply and most repeatedly to influences our affections and our behavior. So whatever we're thinking about constantly, whatever we're exposing our minds to constantly is where our desires will be pulled towards. It's actually what will start to, to change how we make decisions. Have you guys ever, like, say you're buying a car, and all you're doing on your phone is researching cars, looking at what cars you want, and then you go to sleep and dream about cars. This is experience-driven, experience-dependent neuroplasticity. But also, it... it it does the same thing with deep felt emotions, a traumatic experience. Our minds tend to stay there and then it changes our behavior to avoid those experiences again or we repress those experiences as a way to protect ourselves. The same is true of, of in good and euphoric experiences. Our minds go back there and we want to replay that. Experience-dependent neuroplasticity is way more than just modern psychology. This is our design. Um, Greek philosopher, philosopher Epictetus, I hope I got that right. If any Greek historians in here want to correct me, you can do it later. Epictetus, he, he actually takes it to its end and he says it this way. He says, you become what you give your attention to. You become what you give your attention to. Now, I know some of us are probably squirming in our seats that the preacher just quoted a Greek philosopher. We're talking about modern psychology, but listen, this is design. They didn't invent this. Epictetus didn't discover this and, and, and create this idea 
and then put it into all of our, our biology. This is how God made us to be. And because God made us to be this way, there's a reason and he will use it. This is actually uh, part of what we see in scripture when, when the Holy Spirit through the writing of Paul encourages the church in Colossians 3. He says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And then again, uh, as he's saying goodbye to the Philippian church, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, and sarcastically, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, do what? Talk about these things, write these things down, look at them in your Bible and then move on. No, think about these things, this ongoing thought process about these things. So if it's true that you become what you give your attention to, who are you becoming? And if you feel the need to course correct, how do you do that? And we can look at uh, Philippians 4 and the verses before that that statement in in verse 8. Before he gives the command to think about these things, he's actually encouraging the church to, to rejoice, to find joy in all things. This is a church that's being persecuted. How can a persecuted church find joy in all things? And then he goes on and he says, and your hearts will be filled with the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. So you've probably wondered as a Christian, maybe even if you're not a Christian, you've wondered, how do I find joy in life? How do I be filled with joy and peace, especially that kind of peace that Jesus says uh, in, in John 13, hey, don't be anxious, I'm giving you peace. I'm giving you my peace. How do we be filled with that peace and that joy? Paul says, the Holy Spirit says, think about the things that are above. And when you think about these things, when you think about whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is worthy of praise, whatever is excellent, your affections will be pulled towards that direction that you will find Christ as the most to be desired and you'll rejoice and you'll have peace and the rest of it just won't matter. Um, We are moving into a new sermon series this morning. We're going to be in, for the next 12 weeks this week, in the next 11 weeks, excuse me, we're going to be in the book of Psalms. Now, we will next week move into book one of the Psalms. There's five books in the Psalms. I know that can be confusing. There's 150 Psalms, and they're divided into five different parts that have five separate meanings that all kind of play together to sing one main chorus, okay? We're going to look at the whole book of the Psalms today. So book one is the first 41 Psalms. We'll get into that next week. Today, I just want to give, paint a picture for what's the purpose of the Psalms as a whole. And Psalm 73 does that beautifully. 
If you didn't catch it while Lauren was reading it, I hope that you'll catch it while we work through it. We're going to read through it again. Um, But for the next, this week and the next 11 weeks, we're going to be in the book of Psalms. Um, And and it's going to be like we did Mark, how we'd spend some time in Mark and then we would step back and go and, and do something else, maybe for Advent or another series, and then we get back into Mark. The Psalms will act like that, okay? So you can expect that we've just got 11 weeks now, we'll come back to it in another season. Um, but as a whole, the Psalms are a prayer book, right? They're Israel's prayer book that's given to us, the church. And the purpose of this prayer book is to encourage and guide God's people to be faithful to him, as we wait for Jesus to come back, as we hope in Jesus to come back. Now, we've got this official little statement that I want to share about the purpose of the Psalms. The purpose of the Psalms is to encourage and guide God's people to faithfully pray as we hope and wait on him to redeem us. The purpose of the Psalms is to encourage and guide God's people to faithfully pray as we hope and wait on him to redeem us. Now, I know that's a little bit wordy, but that carries purpose and meaning for all 150 psalms. It's going to be wordy. Um, You may have noticed that songs, the psalms and poems and psalms, there's something that they can do where they use less words to communicate these incredibly big and and weighty and rich meanings. The Psalms, and really just songs and poems in general, can say a lot with a little, right? It's incredible how they do that. And so what we have to do is, when we're looking at the whole book, we have to step way back. We have to say, okay, what does the whole book contribute to our faith? Well, it contributes guidance and encouragement Help us to be faithful to God as we pray while we wait for Jesus to come back for us. You may have heard me say um, on our birthday a few, about a month ago now, um, that we celebrate our birthday as a way to look back on God's faithfulness that will encourage us to trust him in the future, right? We, We remember the past to trust in the future, and that's exactly what the Psalms do. They walk through the whole history of Israel up until then looking back on the faithfulness of God to point us towards the faithfulness of God. This is the reason that we have the Psalms, that we use the Psalms. And the the Psalms are not just um, in these pages where we've got this collection of 1 through 50. Did you know that more than no other book in the New Testament, the Psalms is used and quoted? No other book is quoted in the New Testament more than the Psalms. 68 times. 68 times. Jesus quoted them regularly. Paul used them. He even said that we should speak to each other in psalms. Did anybody like walking down the hall just like sing a psalm as you're greeting your neighbor? No, I didn't either. What if that was part of our culture? That'd be like, there's no other church like Redeemer. (laughs) Some people may love that, but. Um, the Psalms were written by more, possibly more than a dozen authors, 
over a, more than a thousand years. And so the, the, the wealth of knowledge and richness and um, understanding in biblical theology and gospel preaching that we see in the Psalms, it's just dense. It's there. They say a lot with just a little. They, they do, we can see it because uh, we have faith in Christ. They do preach the gospel to us. They remind us that God sent his son to save us, that we needed to be saved. We'll look at that in, in Asaph's psalm. And that he will come back. That he, as he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God on his heavenly throne, that he has power and authority and dominion over all the earth. And so he will come back to bring us back into to unified presence with God forever. And so we're looking at what God has done in, in sending his son to save us, to give us faith and hope as we wait for what comes next, that he will fully redeem us, that he will fully bring us into his presence. And so uh, the Psalms keep our mind on the things that are above. The Psalms help us to meditate on and to repeat, to recite, to sing, to pray, to journal the things that are true, honorable, just, pure, worthy of praise, and excellent. The Psalms make good use of that God-given design of experience-dependent neuroplasticity. The Psalms leverage how God made us to keep our affections on him. The Psalms keep us near to God in heart, soul, mind, and strength. We value the Psalms. We love the Psalms. God gave us the Psalms for a reason. Now let's get into Psalm 73. Um, I remember this is going to be a little bit longer of a message, but I'm going to do my best to work quickly through this. Psalm 73 a psalm of Asaph, verses one through three. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, as for me, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, do you catch that tone? God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Has anybody ever felt that way? When I was in high school, my best friend in high school, um, he, had, he and I had talked about this, and I thought it was so strange. He was like, why do the people who don't, believe the gospel and love Jesus and go to church. Why do they get all the nice things and the fancy cars? And like, why? Why is their life so much better? Have you ever felt that way? Like here I am following God, trusting him, put my life in Jesus. There's supposed to be prosperity, right? There's supposed to be blessing. Well, in Asaph's preamble, because these first three verses act as like a preamble to this psalm. Now, we're not going to see a preamble in every psalm, but when we do, it's there for a reason. 
It's there to keep our minds in one place as we read through the rest. So it's, it's giving us the theme or the purpose of this song that we're meant to carry with us throughout, which is kind of what I'm doing in this sermon, that as we walk through the Psalms, I want you to carry some things with you. Now, in this Psalm 73 in particular, what we need to be carrying with us, Asaph says it in short. He, he, he basically just says, God is good, but I doubted him. So as we read, we remember, God is good, but I doubted him. Now, Asaph was a man who was actually chosen by King David. In 1 Chronicles 6, David appoints a, a, a selection of men into the temple uh, service to um, lead the worship for the entire nation of Israel. And Asaph was a man chosen by King David, chosen by God, therefore. So if this man chosen by God says, God is good and I doubted him, should that just make you feel a little more like at peace with your own questions and your own desires and your own doubts and just kind of hold them with a little bit more open-handed? Like, you don't have to control yourself, beat yourself into submission to obedience to Scripture. Like, let's just trust that God is good to the people that trust Him and follow Him. And then, and then these shortcomings that we have, these envious desires, when we look upon the world like Eve looked upon the fruit and saw it was good. And we look upon the, 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 the passions and the, the prosperity of the wicked like that fruit. Let's just trust in God's faithfulness for a minute and instead of demanding obedience from ourselves. Because when we trust in God's faithfulness, we, we see ourselves as Asaph. We'll see in a second what Asaph actually did, where he went. What, what was the turn in his life? Before we go there, he's got to be brutally honest with God. So we're going to go there with Asaph. What, what is he brutally honest about? Verses 4 through 15 is this honest list. He's like, man, they don't have trouble. They're not stricken. They're not, they're, they don't um, fall sick. They're well fed. They're prosperous. They're, uh, what does he say, fattened and sleek. Like to a, to a, a place in time where there were no just grocery stores, you can go get all your food full of fat and calories, prepackaged, ready for you. Um, it actually was hard to keep weight on. And, and so they would look at the, the rich people and envy that they weren't emaciated. And this is how Asaph felt. He wanted all of their status, all their popularity, their pomp. He wanted their comfort. He wanted just simply this thought that maybe if I have a desire, I can satisfy it. That feels a little bit like a foreign concept to us in our culture because whatever we want, we can have. We live in America. If we want it, go get it. If you can't pay for it, you could probably work for it. 
If you can't work for it, you probably steal it. That's the, the world that we live in, chasing after these desires, looking upon the things of this world like Eve looked at the fruit. You know, in, in Genesis 3, when it says that she looked at the fruit and she saw that it was a lust to the eyes and that it was good for eating. She saw something God had forbidden and saw in her own eyes that it was good. And so what Asaph is putting us into is look at all of these wonderful things that, that might satisfy us, that, that we might say, that's good, I need that in my life. Now let's look at verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, when I tried to figure out how to get that, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It haunted me. It exhausted me to feel the, the tug of these temptations. It kept my mind in that place and, and dominated my imagination until, here's the turn, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Now we know in this point in history that God's presence is not confined to one place. Not even then was God's presence defined, confined to one place. But in this time in Israel, the sanctuary of God, where the sacrifices were made, where the, the designs of the temple were such that, that brought you back to the Garden of Eden. When the presence of God was, was there, it was dense, it was tangible. Asaph said, I went into the sanctuary of God, into God's presence, surrounded by the physical and the verbal reminders that God is near to his people and he is good to Israel. When I went into God's sanctuary, then I discerned their end. I figured out what I had been missing all along. This wearisome task that he's talking about is this exhaustion that, that temptation actually deludes you. It tricks you. It looks good. And then it keeps you thinking about it. And, and it wraps your mind around it. And you can't let go of it. And it wears you down until you can't say no. But what does Asaph do? He puts himself in the only place to remember what's true. The only place where there's actually solid ground. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned there. And he's actually, maybe, maybe he's meditating on Psalm 1. So what, what he's saying here is actually a theme that, that threads its way through all 150 Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 1. We're going to read it, because why not? Six verses. Now it says blessed. You may um, not be able to get the word blessed out of your mind. <laughs> it took a lot of practice for me. Um, what, what blessed means here is highly favored, happy, but full of that joy and peace that we talked about earlier. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he what? 
meditates. You know what it means to meditate? To think, to keep your mind there. Actually, in Hebrew, that word meditates means to mumble. They didn't have physical Bibles that they just carried around or pocket Bibles like we do. So a, a community had a scroll. And they may have had one scroll or three scrolls or, or more. And so what they did, their Bibles were in their minds. On God's law, God's instruction, God's teaching, God's guidance, he mumbles day and night. It's just right here on his lips, day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season when it's the right time and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is what Asaph is is tapping into, verse 6 of Psalm 1. For the Lord knows, that word knows means that, that he holds and he keeps. He knows it intimately, it's near to him. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked is destruction. The way of the wicked will wither away. And Asaph, in the sanctuary, in the presence of God, surrounded by the songs, remember, he's, he's the worship leader for Israel, surrounded by the remembrances of God's goodness, seeing the sacrifices, the blood pouring out of the tent. Asaph sees and remembers God is good to his people. But the way of the wicked will perish. Asaph is living this experience of Psalm 1. Um, In his jealousy, he realizes the truth that scripture gives to us, that um, there's a warning here in Psalm 73. Whatever it is you want, you'll get it. That's a warning. Whatever it is you want, you will get it. Because if what you want is your desires to be satisfied, if what you want is what the world calls good, if what you want is not God, You'll get it, but you won't get God. And, and for those of you who, who may not be Christians, who may not um, believe what Scripture says about where goodness in life is really found, that, that feels a little bit empty and a little bit meaningless, right? Like, yeah, that, I'll get it, of course. But for those of us who do believe the words of Scripture, that those who stay near to God find life and peace and joy and blessing. What this means is that it's not the things that God gives us is where we get that. It's God himself. That if we, if we put our affections on God, we get what we want. And then we get all the stuff that the world was seeking after. And that's just icing on the cake. Because when our desires and our thoughts and our affections are for God alone, we'll get him. 
It's, it's just like that hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Verses 21 through 28, the the rest of Psalm 73 is this incredible prayer of repentance and worship. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when I, um, that pricked in heart is like, I was wounded by my own entitlement. The wounds that I had were self-inflicted. When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I thought I knew. I didn't know. I was like a beast towards you. Do you see the humility? Do you, this connects back to verse one, right? Where he says, truly God is good to Israel. Sorry, verse two. To those who are pure in heart. But as for me, I'm brutish and ignorant. And I'm just like those wicked ones. This, this sense of understanding that Asaph gets to does not come without humility. It does not come without him being made low. And that humility and that low, lowness wasn't just saying, okay, I want the things of the world. I know that's not good. So now I have to just like try harder to want the things of God. I have to try harder to put my mind in heaven. No, it came first from a confession. Him saying to God, I was brutish and ignorant to you. All I wanted was the way of the world. All I wanted was to satisfy my own desires. And I just pricked myself in the heart. I did this. All the while I thought you did this. I thought you were withholding from me. But I did this. Asaph recognized and confessed and admitted to his own wickedness. And that repentance, that confession to God, is what actually led to life and blessing for him. Because here's the turn. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. So he's on the heels of knowing and admitting and feeling deeply how much he had betrayed God by chasing his own desires. But he knows, he knows what's true. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. That means when I die, I know I get to be with you forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? Listen, there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. When his attention and his imagination was captivated by the truth of God, it shifted his desires and his affections onto God. Who am I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. That's just gonna happen. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But 
So the first but we had was, was Asaph remembering who he is. And there's a pure in heart, but as for me, and now we're turning it around. But for me, it is good to be near God. There's another translation that says, but for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The Psalms are singing to us. Verse one, surely God is good to Israel. That, that God's ways are good. That he is good to his people. Even and especially when it seems like he's not. Even and especially when it feels to us like we're not getting what we deserve. Like I put in the good work and I'm not getting this blessing and this prosperity that you tell me. What, the Psalms are reminding us that God is not broken. Our trust in God is broken. The role of the book of the Psalms is to give our minds the opportunity to obey the Holy Spirit's instruction to keep our minds on the things that are above. Let's remember the purpose of the Psalms. The purpose of the Psalms is to encourage and guide God's people to faithfully pray as we hope and wait on him to redeem us. The Psalms keep our minds on things that are above. In particular, God's faithfulness to protect and save his people. Now, the nearness of God is my good is, is a, a, a fine and well statement if we're thinking about um, ancient Israel. Like we know what that means for them, that they're cho- this chosen people by God. He has selected them to put his presence in, right? Um, for most of us, we are not uh, by ethnicity or heritage, Israelites. So where do we find ourselves in this promise that God will be good to Israel? Well, something happened 2023-ish years ago that God, through this chosen people, sent himself his very own son, the, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. And the fullness of God was pleased to die on a cross as Jesus Christ. The son given so that the sins of Israel would be forgiven. And that we as Gentiles, as non-Jews, non-Israelites would be grafted into this family tree. That when verse one says, truly God is good to Israel, we get that promise because we're adopted into that family. And so we read this psalm and and we don't just look at it afar like, oh, that's nice for the Jews. This is our story too. We get this promise that God will be good to us and that he has been good to us. And so the, the things that we look back on and remember that we hold and we celebrate is that he sent his son and that he did die on the cross in obedience and that he didn't stay dead, 
but that he rose from the grave. And not only did he rise from the grave, he actually ascended into heaven where he sits next to God the Father on his throne forever. Truly God is good to all the world. Because the promise that we're looking forward to is that we will get to sit with him one day. And that one day will be forever. Psalm 73, 1. Truly God is good to Israel. Truly God is good to us. The Psalms contribute to our faith what communion contributes to our faith. It's this, this standing point of remembrance. That, that have You guys forget things? Yeah. Um, let me just remind you. Forgetting is part of our design. It's good to forget. It is. Now, sin has twisted and broken that. It's made us forget things we're not meant to forget. It's made us forget things too early in our life. It's made us forget everything for some of us. But the Psalms and communion, regardless of where we are, pulls us back into this moment to where we can remember the faithfulness of God to give us his son. And we just do that. We keep doing it. Band, you can go ahead and come up. We keep remembering the faithfulness of God because it's coming back for us. It's here with us now. He's promised that he would be with us, right? He's promised he'd come back and just put an end to all the madness. And so we take the cup, the blood of Jesus poured out for us. We take the bread, the body of Christ broken for us. And for as often as you eat this bread and as you drink this cup, we remember the Lord's death until he comes back. And if you believe and you trust in the body, of Je- body and blood of Jesus, broken and poured out for you, would you please join me at the table?